Today's reading is Mark 6, 45 to 56. It can be found on page 645 of the Bible's next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because all saw, they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you have known us for so long, longer than our parents and longer than any childhood friend. And you've known us deeper. You've known us in a way that's deeper for any person. You see us in our goodness. You see us in our failure. And you see us in the places where we even refuse to look, in those areas of our souls where we are more broken than we could ever admit. Yet, you love us with a love that confounds our lot of worthiness and unworthiness. Father, as we consider the life of Jesus, give us a glimpse into your character. Show us how your unconditional love for your creation is making this world as it is in heaven. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. I have this childhood memory of me at my grandparents' house and watching the news on the week that the Berlin Wall was first opened. This was November of 1989. When I was older, I actually lived near Berlin, and I spent a lot of time in the city, visiting the different boroughs, going to museums, and eating at restaurants. And by the time I got there, the wall was pretty much gone. I rarely saw it. And in fact, on the news recently, I heard that the very last pieces of it are slated to be removed to make way for development. After decades of Cold War and dictatorship, that day in 1989 was a sign of hope, a sign that freedom would finally triumph in Eastern Europe. At the one-year anniversary of the Wall's opening, a number of musical acts converged on Berlin to play a concert. One of the acts was David Hasselhoff, who was, and probably still is, a big star in Germany. 
When it's time to play came, he stood on a piece of the wall and sang his hit single, Looking for Freedom. I was curious, so I looked up the song and listened to it for the lyrics. And here's the first half of the chorus. I've been looking for freedom. I've been looking for so long. I've been looking for freedom. Still, the search goes on. It's a good song. (laughs) At first, it seemed strange to me that the Hoff would sing these lyrics in this context. You know, at this point, the wall had been open for a year. The Soviet Union was disintegrating before everybody's eyes. So, what are you talking about, Hasselhoff? Haven't we already found freedom? Aren't we there yet? I think that what he was getting at is that even though all these things were happening in Europe, true freedom would be much more elusive. And in fact, the search for freedom still continues today in Europe. Although optimists will say that when one door closes, another one soon opens. I think it's truer to our experience to say that when one wall comes down, another one is soon erected in its place. And I'm sorry to switch metaphors like that. But it's true, right? And as Americans, this frustrates us. We idealize freedom. We celebrate success. We teach our children to never settle, to keep moving forward in life, and to check off all the boxes. Inevitably, however, we will all find ourselves in places, in situations, and in life circumstances where this formula no longer works. Where, in spite of our abilities, our luck, our friends and family, our money, and the mobility it affords us, we still find ourselves in a place where we're powerless and unable to move forward. We've hit a wall. One person may be stuck in feelings of loneliness. In her wall is the sense that she's in the wrong city or with the wrong crowd, that she isn't good enough. Another person is trapped in doubt, wondering if he'll ever believe in anything or if it's all just meaningless. Everyone else says so, or at least lives their lives as if it were. Or for another person, you know, life's been actually... Pretty good. Next week makes four years of married bliss or 20 years of killing it on the job. But the next month or the next year, there's a phone call and it's bad. Now what? And if you just think about what life is like outside of our circles, you know, on our streets, on the streets of Sacramento or in war zones, we hear about the news, on the news. There are men and women who are trapped in a hell on earth. What are their walls? Among many things, there's poverty, there's injustice, there's corruption, and maybe even actual walls of concrete and barbed wire. Walls are everywhere. You have yours and I have mine. And the question for you and for me and for the whole world is will we ever get to the other side? In the Gospel text this week, we find the disciples stuck in a storm, wondering if they will ever get to the other side. When we find them, they've been rowing for hours. And the text seems to suggest that 
They set off shortly after dinner, but it wasn't until early the next morning that Jesus would come to them. While they row, they're tired. They're anxious about their slow pace. Maybe they're even a little angry that Jesus sent them on this journey. Maybe they're even bitter that they managed to get caught up in this entire adventure with this Jesus fellow who they barely even know. Some of this is conjecture, to be sure, but we have some hint in the text as to the disciples' mental state because we see that when Jesus finally arrives to them, they are not relieved. They are not overjoyed to see their friend. But instead, they're terrified. What kind of, what kind of reaction is that? You know, it's Jesus, I'm here. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, I, I think you can relate. Sometimes, sometimes you have to wonder if Jesus is more trouble than he's worth. But whether you're a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for a long time or a very short time or you're not a Christian at all, we all have bad moods and we all have bad days. But usually we can take a nap or take a couple of days off drink a couple of beers, and everything is good again. But the things I just cited, fear, persistent fear, anxiety, and unease with living, I don't think there's any amount of napping or vacationing or even drinking that will help. Because on the one hand, there's physical tiredness, and the remedy for that is quite simple, just go to sleep. But on the other hand, there's a soul tiredness that we experience. And I don't think the solution to that is quite as simple. If you understand what I'm talking about, I wonder if you would agree that the reason we're so tired in our souls is that maybe, like the disciples, we have been expending so much energy for so long trying to get to the other side where the grass is greener, where we will finally be happy, where we will finally be at peace. And it's not working. We haven't arrived. Weeks ago, Mark preached on Romans 8, where Paul described how the whole world is in some sense in pain. All of creation is in bondage, being held back. So it's interesting because it's not just you, it's not just me. The whole world is trying to get to the other side. Nobody is forcing us to kill ourselves in the pursuit of happiness. But I think that the reason we don't just give up is that we hold out some hope that we will make it someday. And at this point, you know, I want, I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to be super pessimistic guy, you know, it's really quiet here, I'm worried, but I'm not trying to be a, a, a complete pessimist and say that you won't make it or you won't get some of the things you want. We will have our victories and we will have our good things from time to time. And I'll tell you why later. But think about it. Um, if Paul is to be believed in Romans 8, the entire universe of stars and galaxies black holes and supernovas 
has been trying for billions and billions of years to find freedom for itself. And on its own power, it is failing completely. In Romans, this is the point where Paul turns to Jesus, and that's what we're going to do now. So, while the disciples were out on the water going through their ordeal, where was Jesus anyway? You know, where was this guy? If you remember, he was on the mountainside praying. So, compared to the disciples, he was probably dry, calm, still, you know, not dealing with seasickness, and probably very well rested. But in spite of these comforts, he still sees the disciples. He sees their situation. And he decides to do something about it. When I was thinking about this passage, I started to think of different ways the story could have gone. Maybe like in Mark 4, Jesus could have simply stood up, cupped his hands, and yelled out to the sea, Be quiet! That's what he did in Mark 4 and the sea would have just gone calm. He could have done this remotely. Or he could have let them just tough it out, you know, deal with the storm, guys, and then met them on the other side, shook their hands and congratulated them, congratulated them for a job well done. You guys are tough. You're my Navy SEALs. <laughs> and then giving them a lesson on how hard work builds character or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, but it's interesting. What, what actually happens? What, how does the story actually end? What happens is that Jesus leaves his mountain. He walks down to the shore and goes after these guys. He walks through the same waters. The same wind is cutting against his skin. The same waves are crashing into his body. And Jesus was walking, so it wasn't a quick rescue. It wasn't an easy rescue. But after some time, he is finally there with his disciples. Be courageous, he says. It's me. Do not be afraid. And the waters go still. I don't have the time to go into this, but this story I just told you, this episode, is filled with all these really subtle references to the story of ancient Israel, and particularly the Exodus, which is the story of how God made a way for his people to get to the other side of the desert. I encourage you to look into this or come see me later and we can talk about it. The Gospel of Mark begins by calling Jesus the Son of God. But we only gradually learn what this really means through stories like this one. That Jesus is God in human form, right? That's Christianity. But whether you believe this or not, just assume it's true. And So what is this story telling us? I'll summarize it again. It's saying that the Son of God, from a place of comfort with the Father, leaves this place, exposes his body to the forces of nature, and overcomes them to rescue his friends, right? And if you know your Bible, you know what comes later in the book of Mark. We see Jesus climb up a hill bearing a cross, 
he later dies on that cross. His body is wrapped in linen and buried in a tomb and left to nature to rot. Yet, three days later, some people come to visit the tomb and find it empty. Just some food for thought. I'm not, this is an Easter sun, or sermon. But that's, that's later in the book. More immediately, the disciples make it to the other side, although if you notice, it's not to their original destination, which is another kind of interesting detail we can talk about. Excuse me. Earlier, I claimed that we are all trying to get to the other side of something, something that is causing us pain or getting in the way of our happiness. Okay, so what's the takeaway? Am I saying that if we trust in Jesus, if we follow Jesus, if we believe in him, that he will take us to where we want to go? The answer to that question is no, not necessarily. That notion is too individualistic. Jesus is definitely taking us somewhere, but not to your vision of the other side or to my vision of the other side. He is taking us to his reality of the other side. And actually, quite astonishingly, he's actually bringing the other side to us. What do I mean by this? There is a strange comment in this story, um, in the middle. After Jesus joins the disciples in the boat, the text says that they were amazed at what just happened because they did not understand the loaves and their hearts were hardened. This is verse 52. Okay, what do the loaves have to do with anything? And by the way, what, what, the, what I mean by the loaves are those pieces of bread that Jesus just used to feed 5,000 people. Okay, so there was this miracle with the loaves, right? And then Jesus walks on water. The connection really isn't clear, right? Well, I, I don't know, maybe you know, but to me it wasn't clear. And this line used to be one of those things I would read in the Bible and then just ignore it because it was confusing, right? <laughs> but... But because, but since I had to write this sermon, I had to. <laughs> but since I was given this text to preach on, I tried to understand it a little bit better, and when I finally did, it completely blew my mind. If you notice, a lot of the book of Mark focuses on Jesus on the road. Um, you know, it's f- focusing on him and his travels. And the book of Mark is actually pretty unique in this emphasis. And he is constantly crisscrossing Galilee, so it pretends it's a map of Palestine, Galilee, um, Judea, and uh, Samaria. I don't know if I got those two right. But he's constantly going from place to place, from, from one boundary to the other. Sometimes he crosses by sea like he just did, but most of the time he just goes by foot but we constantly see him going from one side to the other. And it's interesting. Note what he's doing each time he crosses. He's teaching people. He's teaching them new things about God's law. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. 
He's feeding people. He's raising people from the dead. All the while talking about this thing called the kingdom of God. As far as we can tell, maybe with the exception of Mark 4, all of these travels happen without incident. But this one time, there's a problem with the weather, and Jesus finds it necessary to intervene. And so he does. But, but why? Why did he have to do this? Remember all those alternative scenarios I imagined. Why did Jesus have to go out onto the water and meet them? Why did he have to do it that way, specifically? And the answer we're given is somewhat cryptic. It's because of the lows. So this is a weird twisting of the definition of because, but what it means is that the lows are not a cause for this miracle, but that Jesus does this miracle for the sake of the loaves and for everything else they represent. For those who died and were raised to life by Jesus' power, for the sake of the sick and hungry who were fed and healed by Jesus. Because God, through Jesus, at that point in history, had begun to unleash his power onto the world. And it would not be stopped especially not by bad weather. The point I'm trying to make is what this story is telling us, and actually most of the book of Mark, is that God is bringing heaven to earth. The other side is coming to us, and it will not be stopped. I believe that these are words of great truth, and great power. But whether you are sitting there skeptical or sitting there with great faith, there may still be pain in your life. And my words, these words, will not make it go away. It's not that simple. But I want you to know that in your pain and in your intense longing to get to the other side, Jesus is somewhere out there in the waves. And he's coming for you. And when he does, everything will change. Loneliness and self-pity will turn into the realization of a divine love that is more constant and unconditional than any man's or any woman's. Doubt and despair will turn into the realization that there is an eternal and all-knowing God out there, and he is patient, and he will wait for you as you continue with your struggles and questions. And in the trauma of the experience of violence, or the process of aging and experiencing our own bodies failing us, we find assurance of eternal peace and new creation. These are things that Jesus himself would experience pain and death for. The other side, the other side, the kingdom of God, it's here, but not fully, and not in ways that are always obvious. But my hope is that through God's grace, through the sacraments, And through the love we have for each other and for our neighbors, 
and through the way we pray for each other, and in all the small ways that God plays in our lives, that you might begin to glimpse parts of it today. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust in you as we live in the tension of your kingdom being here, but not yet in its fullness. And Lord, give us the grace and wisdom to see whether and how our lives are pointed towards your kingdom, or if we're still focused on our own dreams and ambitions. And Lord, if, like your disciples, our hearts are hardened, would you use your Holy Spirit to speak to us? Show us to see the world as you see it, and to act in the world as you would have us. And as the body of Christ, help us to strengthen and build each other up as we proclaim together that Jesus is returning to bring the other side to us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who makes all things new. Amen.